0: Yeah, so I'm going to cover some ground today to make up for doing one verse a Sunday for the last couple months. Yeah. All right. Jesus says, for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner. I could use some glasses right now. (laughs) Is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now, when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Again, he went about the sixth and the ninth hour and did likewise. And about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, you will receive. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, Call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And when those came who were hired about the eleventh hour, they each received a denarius. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more, and they likewise received each a denarius. And when they received, and when they had received it, they complained against the landowner saying, these last men have worked only one hour and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? So the last will be first. And the first last, for many are called, but few chosen. Now Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. And the third day he will rise again. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him, with their sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, What do you wish? And she said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on the left in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized? With the baptism that I am baptized with, they said to him, We are able. So he said to them, You will indeed drink my cup. And be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand, or my left, is not mine to give. But it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know the rulers of the Gentiles. Lord, it over them. And those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for your instruction. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would teach us this morning something about your grace. Something about your atonement, your sacrifice. Something about leadership. And... um, yeah, so grant us grace, Lord. And Lord, also, we, we just lift up all the people in the world that are suffering. Lord, it seems like if we were to grab a globe, it wouldn't matter where we touched it, there would be pain. And Lord, we know that you're conscious of it and that you, you've done something about it at Calvary and that you will bring all evil to a place of expiration. Lord, we pray that it's soon. But we pray that you would be with people around the world, Lord, that you would be reaching out to them by your people by dreams or to whatever means it would take to reach them to save them or we pray that 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 people evil people would be filled with mercy they would see the wickedness of what they're doing we pray that you would spare many lives and that many lives would receive the gospel so lord work in ways that are just outside of our our ability our reach lord and um, yeah and lord help us as we process all that's going on, to know that it's within your sovereign grip, that you will let nothing get beyond, uh, Lord, your orchestrated plan to bring all things to an intended end for your glory and for the good of man. So strengthen our faith, help us to have courage, and Lord, help us to be assertive with the gospel. Lord, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go ahead and be seated. See if we can get through 28 verses this morning. It would be fun. All right, uh, turn with me, if you would, to verse 1. Uh, Jesus says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. So once again, Jesus uh, is illustrating the kingdom of heaven by way of parable, that is, illustration. And uh, this time, he means to illustrate what he had said in chapter 19, verse 30, okay, to the boys. He said, but many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. So the story here, uh, it comes from a custom out of the first century uh, Jewish life, okay, where laborers, what they would do is they would go to the, the, the local uh, marketplace, they would have their shovels, picks, whatever they uh, would use for laboring, and they would wait there for a landowner to come and hire them. In our story, it's a wealthy man who... Uh, owns a rather large vineyard that requires a number of laborers to tend it, so he goes there, the rich man, the landowner to uh, the market early in the morning to hire workers. now he probably arrived there at six a m which is called the first hour okay and everything's going to be broken up into three hour increments in all of this it says now when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. So there seems to be some uh, negotiating that has happened uh, for the wage. An agreement is made and the workers are sent into the vineyard. Uh, at that time, a denarius uh, was typically a laborer's day's wage. <clears throat> now everybody wants to know, well, how much was that? Well, it, it is impossible really to know how much that was because the way that economies fluctuate, do they? Do we know that economies fluctuate? Uh, we're trying to figure out how inflation has come down, but prices have gone up. It's all making sense to me. Uh, anyway, <clears throat> it's pretty much impossible. But, you know, they, in, in, in that time, it was the same thing, uh, depending on the circumstances going on in the Roman Empire or beyond, uh, depending on how, how trade was. Uh, and an example of this is in, is in Revelation chapter 6, verse 6. Uh, It says a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. That means for a day's wage, you could get uh, a quart of wheat. Those are hard times, right? Hard times. So there was inflation, there was problems that would happen, and uh, so who knows how much this was, but it was a typical day's wage for the laborer. And he, that's the landowner, he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. So this time now, the third hour is 9 a.m. More men are standing idle there in the marketplace. And to these men, though, there's no negotiating. He just says, whatever is right, whatever is right, I will pay you. And they go. Uh, apparently trusting him. Again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did likewise, and about the eleventh hour. Nobody in their right mind would go out in the eleventh hour, right? Because the twelfth hour is COB. That's close of business for you young guys. About the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day? What have you been doing? They said to him, Because no one hired us. He said to them, You also go into the vineyard and whatever is right. You will receive. So these guys have uh, one hour left in the work day, Uh, but they apparently needed the work, and the landowner needed the workers, so they're hired and they're expecting whatever is right. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, Call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. So now it's 6 p.m., that's COB in the east. Okay, notice that the work day was how long? Whew, 12 hours, yeah. And also, according to the law of Moses, all laborers had to be paid the same day of their work. So in accord with the law, the owner had his steward call his workers together and give them their payment at the close of business. And then for the landowner's own reasons, those who were hired last, who only worked an hour, were to be paid first. Those who were hired first had to wait. So here is how the owner of the vineyard distributed payment. And when those came who were hired about the 11th hour, they received each, or they each received a denarius. So that's the same amount that was negotiated for and agreed upon for those that came the first hour and worked the whole day. Um, They were paid a full day's wage for one hour of work. How do you think they felt about that? <clears throat> Probably appreciated it. Okay? Probably elated. They received way more than they worked for. Okay? So obviously the owner of the vineyard is being extremely gracious with these men. But when the first came, they supposed they thought that they would receive more and they likewise each likewise received each a denarius. I'm going to learn how to read before our time's up this morning. So, I can't see it. That's right. That's right. (laughs) So, they get the same as those who worked only an hour. Yeah. It says that the guys that worked all day, after witnessing those that worked one hour get a denarius, they just thought, for sure, since we work so much longer, we would definitely get paid. Perhaps 12 times more, right? No. So now they have beef with the owner. And when they had received it, they complained against the landowner saying, these last men have worked only one hour and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. Okay. That's, they're upset. They're upset. He was generous to one and they thought that he should be generous to them. But is that how grace works? Good question. But he answered one of them and said, friend, I'm doing you. No wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? So first, he says, no wrong has been done. At the beginning of the day, in verse 2, you agreed. You negotiated. You agreed. This was the contract that we made at the beginning of the day. So no wrong has been done in that regard. He says, take what is yours, what is yours, and go your way. I wish to give this last man the same as you. So second, a denarius for their wage was theirs by law. That was the contract that they came up with. So he owed that to them. They got what they deserved. They got exactly what they worked for according to the contract. He says, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? Third, The owner can distribute his wealth however he pleases. Typically, that should be the case. So he was bound as the owner to the contract with these men. So he actually owed them a denarius each. But did he owe them anything more? Absolutely not. He was at liberty to give more, but not because he was legally bound. And then the owner points out something very interesting. The grace he bestowed on those who only worked an hour exposed the evil in those who worked all day. They felt entitled to more even though they agreed upon a denarius which they earned. They didn't earn the owner's grace because grace cannot be earned, right? They were envious and they were covetousness. I'm sorry, they were covetous that the owner showed grace to those other men but only gave them what they earned. They got what they deserved. They got their wage which was Now, those who worked an hour only, they got what they did not deserve, right? That's what they got. But the owner showed them grace, and it was just as fair because the owner's wealth is his own, and he can distribute it how he pleases. Isn't that true? He can. So those who worked all day were upset by the distribution of the owner's grace. It didn't seem fair from their perspective, but it was now, of course, it would have been unjust if the owner took the denarius owed to those who worked 12 hours and then split it with those who only worked an hour, but that's, that's not what happened. The owner distributed his own money how he pleased, and it pleased him to show grace to those who didn't work all day. Do you feel like the recipient of grace sometimes? Yeah. Now, again, the context of the parable comes out of Jesus' discussion with the apostles from the previous chapter. Peter had asked the question, See, we have left all and followed you, therefore what shall we have? And so Jesus promised the twelve, twelve thrones in the regeneration where they will judge the twelve tribes of Israel, plus they would get a hundredfold for what they had left to follow him, and they would inherit eternal life. The parable illustrates that while the apostles may have done all of that, there will be others who will do far less, but God can do with his own things what he pleases, and he will distribute his grace to them. Hmm. Some will work longer, some are going to work harder, but his grace is going to be freely distributed to those who did less, not because they deserve it, but purely because God is gracious, amen? God has promised great things to those who come to him, to those who serve him and sacrifice him, and it should be to their delight But he is going to lavish his undeserving grace on those who come later. He will, if it pleases him, to make them equal with the rest, just as he did in the story. Now, have you guys found that the economy of God's grace is slightly mystifying? You should, because God has been gracious to all of us as sinners who rebelled against him, and he has distributed grace to us. You know, I often ask people, how are you doing? And they say, Better than I deserve. That is a true statement. Okay? It's a true statement. Better than we deserve. God's the economy of God's grace is mystifying. It can appear unreasonable to those who receive less. And unless our heart is in the right place, we can think that God has mistreated us by way of his treating others well. I don't know why we do that in America. Because we, we're always talking about how blessed we are, things we get, things we have. Does that mean that those in Africa are not blessed? Grace is an interesting thing. We should calm down a little bit with what we don't have. God can, without any violation of what is fair, he can put others before us who we deem less deserving than ourselves. And if we complain, guess what kind of response we'll get? Is your eye evil? Because I was good to them. I showed grace to them. Yeah. If we have the right heart and we understand a little bit more about God's grace, we will rejoice with those who experience an extra measure of his grace that made them equal to us. But if our heart is in the wrong place, we're going to grumble against God and we're going to envy our brothers or our sisters. So I think it's important for us to prepare ourselves for the grace that God might show others. We we experience this with our children when, of course, if you have more than one child, And one of the children gets to go and be blessed by grandparents, by friends, or whatever, and they don't get to participate. What does the non-participant child typically do? They whine, they grumble, they complain. But what should we be teaching our children to do? To rejoice with those who rejoice? To be happy for them? To be glad for them? We need to do that with our brothers and sisters. When God distributes his grace to them, instead of making, about, making it about us. Because it shows envy in our heart. It shows covetousness, which is ungodly. We need to brace ourselves. We need to be prepared for what God will do with his grace because we are so selfish. We think that all of life is about us, and it's not. All the grace that we've received has been undeserved, and all the grace that they receive is undeserved. And if you get overlooked... Well, God may have overlooked you so that he can demonstrate how evil you still are, (laughs) so that you can repent. What did I do wrong? Oh, you're hilarious. Thanks. All right. Go sit down. (laughs) Man, I'm not putting them on. (laughs) All right. Now, real quick, as with all parables, okay, uh, we have to understand that like all illustrations, they break down into inconsistencies. Have you noticed that about parables in general? About illustration. Please say yes. Not every piece of an illustration is perfect. Our objective when we look at the parables is to get the main point of the illustration, not to break it down into its finer points, which will typically lead to confusion and absurdity. Uh, And I know too many people that have created false doctrine out of illustrations, out of parables of Jesus. And so we're looking for the main point. For example, um, how it, things break down. Any landowner who practiced the ethic in this parable would eventually get nothing done and go broke, wouldn't he? I mean, who's going to show up for work at 6 a.m.? If he's divvying out a denarius for, for you know, for an hour's work or 12 hours' work, everybody's going to come at what time? Eleventh hour, okay? So this is an illustration uh, that, that wouldn't really function in our world, okay? Jesus is making a spiritual point that isn't applied to the economy of earth. I mean, if you had an infinite amount of funds to distribute that way, fine. But you don't, and nobody does. Maybe Elon Musk does, but most people don't. But God has an infinite amount of grace, right, that he can distribute. This only functions in the economy of God. And that's what it's about. It's the economy of God's infinite grace and how he distributes it according to his good pleasure. His good pleasure. Only those who are the recipients of His grace experience a hundredfold an eternal life. No one will earn it by their labor for God. No one deserves His grace. It's freely given. And, and what I think that people don't understand sometimes is that grace, it's not that it's not earned. Grace as a concept, as a principle, cannot be earned. It can't be worked for. It can never be deserved. What is deserved... What is earned or worked for is a different sort of principle altogether, okay? Grace that is earned is not grace. If you earned it, it was owed to you, right? You have put the other person in debt to you, just like these workers that came at the first hour, They, by their labors, they put the owner in debt to them legally. He owed them that money. That's not grace. That's the principle of merit, of wages. So grace is not bestowed because of any virtue in the recipient. That hurts, doesn't it? I got this from you and it has nothing to do with me? No, it ha- it's purely based upon the virtue in the giver. He's virtuous, we're not. So whatever we receive from God in this context is given to us freely. God is not compelled by us, he's only compelled from within himself. We have no right to his grace. We only have the ability to receive it when it's bestowed. It's his to give, he can distribute how he wants, and this is what is amazing, it has pleased him to distribute his grace in ways that makes our heads spin, to make us cock our head. When the most undeserving become recipients of his grace, it makes us think differently. And whether you're godly or ungodly will determine how you respond, right? Yeah, it's grace. And because that's the way he's ordained it, he concludes with this saying, so the last will be first and the first last, for many are called but few Chosen, <clears throat> he's decided to pour out his grace and make the last equal with the first. Prepare yourself for that. Now, added to this saying is the last sentence, which says, "For many are called, but few are chosen." This creates a challenge in itself. Okay, uh, I'm going to address it more fully in chapter 22, uh, in the parable of the wedding feast. Okay, chapter 22, parable of the wedding feast, uh, where Jesus will illustrate the saying itself. Uh, for now, uh, just in hopes to whet your appetite, Jesus uses the word many to mean all. He uses the word many to mean all. All are called, but only a few are chosen. Okay? Paul uses the word many in Romans chapter 5 in the same way that Jesus does here, and we'll relate it to that because it's very important. Okay? It means all. And it'll become clear when we get to the parable of the wedding feast. Let's, let's move on. some transition here. Now, Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the 12 disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify, and the third day he will rise again. So, the third time... For the third time in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has predicted his suffering, death, and resurrection. It's recorded here, Matthew 16, 21, and Matthew 17, 22. The disciples don't seem to be getting it. The, the comments of Jesus, what he's saying here, seems to just go right over their head. Even though in Matthew 16, when Jesus talked about it, he said that he must suffer. He must die, and he must rise again. They were missing it, missing it. This was the mission of Jesus' first coming, and they missed it. They weren't getting it, okay? Even though he provides more information each time, he brings it up. In Jerusalem, where they're headed, Jesus will be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes. The, the, The religious leaders of Israel are going to take him, condemn him to death, But because they lack the authority to execute him, they'll turn him over to the Gentiles, who will mock and scourge and finally crucify him. But on the third day, he'll rise again. Isn't it fascinating how the disciples spent so much time with Jesus that they couldn't get this into their heads, that this was actually happening. It was actually going to happen. That he was the Savior meant only to them that he would raise up a rebellion and overthrow the Romans. That's what they thought when uh, the the concept of savior came to them. Uh, Saving them meant political liberation. It meant the reestablishment of the Davidic dynasty, which is to be expected, as the angel Gabriel communicated to Mary, but not to the exclusion of this. You remember when the angel came to Joseph, he said that the boy that would be born to Mary, you need to call his name Jesus, because he's gonna save his people not from Rome, but from their sins, okay? You see, the Davidic kingdom would be all for naught without redeemed citizens. Bringing about the kingdom prior to this, there would be a king without redeemed subjects. So the work of spiritual salvation had to come first, which is only possible by means of Jesus' suffering, death, and resurrection. And what's crazy is the truth of this isn't going to be fully understood by the apostles until the Holy Spirit lightens them on the day of Pentecost. Isn't that fascinating? To be with Jesus, to hear him teach, not understand. But then as soon as they're regenerate by the Holy Spirit, all of that comes alive to them. Yeah. Now, on this particular occasion, when Jesus repeated his fate to the disciples, uh, they were silent and they, they showed no emotion. Now, of course, Peter wasn't about to say anything because what happened last time he said something? He got rebuked for being the instrument of Satan. So Peter heard it, and he's like, nothing. The second time that Jesus mentioned it, the disciples, it says they were exceedingly sorrowful, but they still didn't understand. So apparently just the, the morbid nature of the statement uh, just seems so unnecessary to them. Why is he talking crazy? Okay. But this time there's no response. Of course, they're thinking about it, I, I hope. But no one said anything. But this thing is happening no matter what they thought, no matter what they did, the Father had ordained it from the foundation of the world. There's nothing that anybody could do about what God had predetermined. We see it in Psalm 22. We see it in Isaiah 53. Nothing foreordained, nothing predicted there is, can fall to the ground. It will happen. God is going to use the instrumentation of wicked man to save man. How all that works, you'll have to take it up with him. Okay. And then following this, Because there was probably some awkward silence after Jesus said this. Something else awkward happens. It says, Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on the left, in your kingdom. Now you remember in chapter 19, Jesus had mentioned the regeneration, okay? Okay? when he would sit on the throne of his glory and the 12 disciples would sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And so it seems that anticipating this, the mother of James and John, the wife of Zebedee, she requested that her sons sit closest to Jesus, which would give them rank and authority over the other 10. Give them the highest positions just under you. One commentator Muses that their mother took Jesus' discussion about the 12 thrones literally and thus made this error of thinking her sons would actually sit on thrones in the messianic kingdom. Well, if, if they're not going to sit on literal thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel, what will they literally be doing in the regeneration? If Jesus didn't mean what he said literally, please inform us, Mr. Commentator, what he meant literally. Jesus, he doesn't mean what he says. If he doesn't mean what he says, what then does he mean by what he says? And who will tell us? And how do they know they are right if Jesus doesn't explain himself or actually mean what he says? If Jesus didn't mean what he actually said, why did he continue to advance the subject of literal thrones upon which literal people would sit? Listen, if literal thrones is not what he meant literally, and he continues to speak as if they were without any explanation... Isn't he being a bit deceptive? Why is he perpetuating this thought in their minds if it's not real, if it's not going to happen? Do you understand? It's strange. Why didn't Jesus take the time to clarify what he did mean if he didn't mean it? He took the time to explain everything else. He didn't clarify what he meant regarding the thrones because he already said what he meant. It's that simple. He already said what he meant. So how did Jesus respond to this request? He said, but Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you ask. Of course, turning to the boys, he says, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, we are able. The the cup, the baptism, referring to Jesus' suffering and death. You, You remember when Jesus was in the garden, he was praying to his father and he said, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. What Jesus is facing, just moments after this prayer, the contents of the cup will begin to be poured out. He will drink all of it. Yeah. In the scriptures, when a cup was referenced as, you know, when it's an obvious figure of speech, it spoke of someone's portion, what they deserved or what they were going to experience, whether good or bad. There's a number of cups in the scriptures used as a figure of speech. There's the cup of blessing, Psalm 23. The cup of salvation, Psalm 116. The cup of consolation, Jeremiah 16. The cup of wrath, Psalm, 1, I'm sorry, Psalm 11 and Isaiah 51. There's a cup of horror and desolation, Ezekiel 23. There are more. Jesus had received from his father, as it were, the cup of wrath. That's what the atonement is all about. It's about the wrath of God being poured out on the Son of God for the sins of man. Jesus, after that, is going to be tried right after his prayer. The following day, he would suffer false accusations, unjust beatings, extreme torture, until he would finally face the cross where he would die. He would drink all the contents of the cup of God's righteous indignation against man. That's the cup that Jesus is referring to when he says to James and John, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Are you able to bear what I'm about to face? Jesus also mentions the baptism that he was facing. This too is a figure of speech regarding the suffering that he would endure. In Luke 12 verse 50, Jesus said, he said this, but I have a baptism to be baptized with and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. So distressed, in fact, that his sweat became like great drops of blood as he prayed in the garden. Does that sound like distress? The word distress is used oftentimes figuratively, figuratively to speak of a city that is under siege by an enemy. So Jesus, in a sense, is saying that his heart was under siege, this flood of emotions coming upon him because of what he will face. So Jesus says to these men, are you able to bear what I am about to bear? And these guys, as the guys typically did, they said, oh, we got this. And whether they fully understood or not, they would get it. They would get it. As Jesus later alludes to, he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. So he says, "You guys will endure all of these things." James actually was the first. In Acts one through twelve, 1-12, he was one through twelve two. Sorry, he's the first to endure martyrdom among the apostles. John, who escaped martyrdom, did endure much persecution and suffering. Church history tells us that he was placed in a vat of boiling oil. Uh, that's not the baptism he was expecting. Okay? Yeah. And we do know from Scripture that he was exiled to the island of Patmos as an old man to work the mines there. Okay? Both suffered greatly for the gospel, just as Jesus predicted. But filling the seats to Jesus' right hand and to his left, that is purely the prerogative of his father. And apparently the father had already decided who was going to fill those stations. Unless, of course, those seats are not literal. Now, Jesus doesn't mention who they are. Uh, I think there's clues in scriptures to sort of help identify them. I think that one of them is King David. I have no idea who the other one is. We can talk about potentially why it's King David at another time. I don't want to get into that now. So, of course, the ten heard it or they heard about it they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. You know, why would you do that and just try to be our superiors? But Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. So Jesus, he starts out to maybe to calm them down a little bit um, before they lay hands on James and John. He wants to get in the middle of this. But he says that the structure and the exercise of, of authority among the Gentiles was one of mastery over their servants. It was superiors over subordinates. The rulers of the Gentiles would lord their power over others to serve their own interests for their own gain. They used people as a means to their selfish ends. But Jesus says this cannot, this shall not be the case among those who lead in the faith of Christ. There's still going to be leadership. There'll still be those who rule. There'll still be those who exercise authority, but it cannot be for the selfish interest or the dishonest gain for filthy money. Um, I think the King James says filthy lucre. I love that. He says that leadership can never be at the sh- expense of others. If you're in leadership, according to my calling, it must have at the heart of it a different disposition, a different motive and objective. Leadership in Christ must always be a means of serving God's people for God's ends. People can't be used for selfish intentions. They must be treated as an end in themselves. Amen? This all adds up to a servant-style leadership, as Jesus says. He says, and whoever... (laughs) Desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. So anyone who would even desire leadership within the church must be motivated by serving others, serving those under their care. They, of course, there's other qualifications for spiritual leadership, but this one seems to qualify all the, all the other qualifications. You know It's good and very important that pastors and elders understand biblical theology. They know the doctrines contained in the scriptures and that they're able to teach others. But if they're not motivated to serve others, they are disqualified for leadership in the ministry. This is interesting. uh, As I observe many pastors, many ministries, what happens in them is that we have servants who are not theologians or theologians who are not servants. You see, where you have servants who are not theologians, the people are well loved but poorly taught. And then, of course, they're often naive. And where you have theologians who are not servants, you have a church that is well-taught but unloved and then often arrogant and cold. How does that sound? Naive, being carried away by every wind of doctrine, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, or cold and arrogant, which is void of the charity of God. Peter says this. He says, Two elders, speaking to the elders of the churches, he says, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, that's filthy lucre, dirty money, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. So they have to be shepherds who are constantly looking over the well-being of the flock, serving their needs. And Paul told Timothy... He said the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And he goes on to say in verse 24 and 25, And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance, so that they may know the truth. In Ephesians 4, Paul refers to this office as pastor-teacher. Literally, a teaching shepherd. He must fill the role of shepherd who serves and that teaches, instructs. Looking to Jesus, who is the greatest of all teaching shepherds, as Jesus says. Just as you guys, especially leadership in the church, must be just as the son of man who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Very fun passage. So the Son of Man, to whom belongs all the kingdoms of the world, who stands as the singular object of angelic praise and adoration, as Hebrews 1 says, the Savior of all men, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, he of all people did not come to be served, but to serve. So if Jesus came not to be served, who are we to think that others should serve us? Especially in leadership. Who are we not to walk in his steps? But even more so, Jesus gave his life a ransom for many. Now, this statement crammed into this represents just a great deal of Christian theology regarding the nature of Jesus' atonement. He says he gave his life a ransom. First, he gave his life, therefore he did it voluntarily in perfect harmony with his father. And then the word ransom Comes from the Greek word Lutron. Lutron. It's a particular kind of payment. The Lutron was given, okay, for a slave's freedom. So if he went to pay for a slave's freedom, the the, the the name of the payment would be Lutron. I'm offering Lutron for that one. And once the Lutron was processed, the slave would go free, completely free. Jesus says that he gave his life as a form of currency for the liberation of slaves. What kind of slaves? Well, in John 8, 34, Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. We know that the wages of sin is death. We're slaves to what leads us to our ultimate destruction. But Jesus interposed with his life, that is, his blood, to purchase our freedom and to spare us from that judgment. And then in John, he concludes, for if the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. But there's more. His life was given as a ransom for many. What is many? Okay. Not always, but we'll demonstrate that even here it means all. The word for is the Greek word anti, okay, which speaks of substitution, yeah. of something done by one person instead of another person, something done in the place of another. The passage here does not mean that Jesus gave his life for the sake of others, although he certainly did it for our sake, but that's not what the word here means. Jesus gave his life as a currency in the place of ours. He, his life was substituted for ours. He stood in our place and he paid our debt with his blood. Peter puts it this way knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. We were not redeemed, that is, we were not purchased with corruptible, you know, material forms of currency like silver or gold. We were purchased, we were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. So he stood in our place, he received our penalty, and then he paid our debt with his blood. Now we of course cannot do that for others because we ourselves are sinners, we must pay for our own sin, but we can give our life for others. John says, by this we know love because he laid down his life for us. Now there the word for means for the sake of, it's a totally different Greek word. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So so we can't stand in judgment before God for another. We can't receive their punishment for sin, and we cannot pay their debt with our blood. But like Jesus is teaching in in Matthew 20, and as John is teaching here, we can live sacrificially for the people of God. And if God so chooses, we should lay our lives down for them. And for those in spiritual leadership, this is actually a requirement. It's a, it's a qualification. We have to live sacri- sacrificially for others. And we must stand between the flock and whatever evil comes their way. Amen. Some of you one day are going to move away and go to another church. Some of you are going to stay here. Uh, some of you may not like what I preach and go to another church. Uh, whatever the case is. Don't put yourself in the, under any other kind of leadership. Amen? Choose your leadership wisely because the leadership will take that church wherever it's going. Okay. Go ahead and stand up and we'll pray. I'm a couple minutes late here. So when I'm done praying, if you have children in our classrooms, please go get them. Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for your grace, which you have the prerogative to distribute however you please. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to enjoy your grace no matter who gets it, that we would be thankful for all that we receive from you. We don't deserve any of it. Lord, we do pray that you would help us all to be people of sacrifice for the sake of others, Lord, for your glory. Lord, I pray especially for the leadership as that is something that qualifies us, Lord, that we would be good teaching shepherds, Lord, that nurture, that love, that care for the flock. Give us your grace, we pray, to do that well. Lord, I thank you for my church family. I pray that you'd just continue to teach them your word, that you'd continue to grant them grace to walk in your word, to live worthy, Lord, of the call. Help us, we pray. Lord, we love you, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right.